Hello and welcome to the Weekend Wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your co-host for this special edition of the Weekend Wrap on April the 30th in the year 2023. My name is Ben Davison and joining me is my regular co-host of the week on Wednesday, the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, Van Batam. How are you, Van? Oh my God, I love doing these little surprise Sunday appearances. You just sounded like you were having so much fun watching Insiders. I just wanted to be in the room. Yeah, look, it has been a remarkable week in Australian politics. It's always a remarkable week in Australian <laughs> politics, Ben. It's always remarkable. We live in a remarkable country with remarkable people and our politics is just as remarkable. Well, we are now inside the last 10 days before the budget. And, of course, the government is releasing papers and releasing policy positions. And the media are acting like children, trying to work out what presents they're going to get at Christmas time. And really, David Spears on Insiders Today just sums up that sentiment entirely. You know, one of the big policy announcements this week was around changes to the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and the way people access Medicines. This Isn't is it worth more than a billion dollars? Around 1.6. Now, the Pharmacy Guild, which is the closed shop that represents pharmacy uh, owners, right, uh, represents pharmacists, people like Chemist Warehouse, Chemmart, those sorts of organisations. Ah, the oppressed working class. They have said that it's actually more like $2.3 billion. Now, I say the more money we save, the better. They say that this is already causing bankruptcies. This is a policy position which has not come into effect and is not yet law, yet somehow or another, uh, Kevin Twomey, who is the president of the Pharmaceutical Guild, uh, stood up in Parliament House at a news conference, tears in his little eyes, just before Warren Inch announced that Mr Twomey may well become an LNP Senate candidate, but the tears were already in his eyes as he announced that there were all these people under the age of 40 who owned their first pharmacy uh, with support from mum and dad who had gone bankrupt from a policy that had not yet come into place. Interesting to note, Van. That's a great story, isn't it? Well, it's interesting to note because uh, Mr. Twomey, uh, his personal salary uh, for doing the role as president of the Pharmaceutical Guild, quite aside from any income he may well get as a pharmacist or owning pharmacies, I should say, uh, is more than the Victorian health minister's salary and is about the same as the Commonwealth health minister's salary. Now, one might say that the Commonwealth health minister has significantly more responsibility than the head of the Pharmaceutical Guild, but then one would need to check the financial records of the Pharmaceutical Guild to realise that Mr Twomey has almost $60 million in financial assets in the Guild that they play with. They have a $4 million fighting fund. That's what they call it in their books, a fighting fund. So one can expect, I imagine, some negative attack ads on the Labor government and this policy position, given how much Mr. Twomey is opposed to it for all the bankruptcies it's already apparently causing, despite the hundreds of thousands of Australians who will benefit from both cheaper medicine and easier access to their medicine. Uh, it seems that Mr. Twomey's uh, ambitions to be a LNP senator uh, seem to outweigh the benefits that he wants 
for Australian consumers of pharmaceuticals. So has he been named as a potential senator to replace Mullen in New South Wales? No, in Queensland, actually. In Queensland. Yes, it was It was uh, Warren Ench, the member for Leichhardt, has suggested that uh, Mr Twomey may have a future in politics, either in the Senate. Well, if he can cry on TV, I mean, it's looking pretty good. Particularly about something that clearly hasn't happened yet, or if it has happened, it's happened as a result of something else. I'm not saying those people didn't go bankrupt, but I'm saying that when the president of the Pharmaceutical Guild gets up and says that somebody who got a loan from their parents for their first pharmacy, <laughs> that's, what first. He said, that's what he said, their first pharmacy has now gone bankrupt. One suspects they may have gone bankrupt because they overextended their credit line, opening too many pharmacies. <laughs> Uh, now, I wonder if they budgeted their labour costs. Most people <laughs> tend not to. They tend not to. Uh, and look, the reason I bring it up, Van, is not only because it is a massive piece of policy that is worth discussing, it's also because David Spears and insiders today didn't mention it at all. No, they didn't, did they? No, it wasn't apparently worth discussing on the ABC's flagship political program. And I use the word flagship quite advisedly. <laughs> Because what David Spears did choose to focus on was the policy positions announced by his guest of the day, the Deputy Prime Minister, and in this context, somewhat more importantly, it would seem, Minister for Defence, Richard Miles. So Richard Miles, of course, announced, in conjunction with Anthony Albanese this week, a review of Australia's strategic defence arrangements. Now... (laughs) How did that conversation go, Ben? Well, Van, the reason why my face dropped when I said that was because there seemed to be a lot of discussion about defence spending and investment. That's not what this paper is about. What this paper is about is about capabilities. That is, what do we need to defend our country? So, for example, if the Morrison government had put in a large order for, I don't know, muskets just before it left government... (laughs) A defence review might go, hmm, muskets are an outdated technology, let's buy something else. Labor has already committed to increasing defence investment beyond the 2% of GDP. They did that during the campaign. They did that in the October mini-budget. They continue to support that. And Richard Miles made that point, despite being constantly pressed by David Spears, who seemed to be on his own very own boy's adventure in this interview. He does get very excited about military technology. He's one of those guys who are in a parallel universe where he gets to be a cabinet minister, puts his hand up for defence materiel. Oh, all the time, every day. He's that kind of guy. And, look, I'm into it. I'm into it. Some of my best friends slash the man I married are military policy nerds. Look, I'm I'm a uh, yes, I am. But even I found it a bit weird and just <laughs> obsessive because look, the defence review paper has been attacked, obviously, um, by Andrew Hastie, uh, former uh, uh, Australian Army uh, officer Andrew Hastie, because what the defence from re- the LNP, yeah, from the LNP, uh, what the paper says is that. We've had too much of a focus on the army and, and army capability, infantry fighting vehicles, uh, artillery, right? As Richard Miles said in the interview, uh, we currently have the capability to project about 40 miles. That's because we have artillery. What the paper has suggested- What does that mean? I don't know what that project. means. Project. That means that we can shoot a, a projectile 
40 miles, right? We can lob an artillery shell, we can fire a rocket, whatever, 40 miles. Mm, in case an infantry division from another country leaps out of the sea. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, that's not a great deal of uh, radius from our coastline. That's not a huge distance away. What the review paper has said is that we should be looking at missile capability, we should be looking at more like a 300-kilometre uh, projectile range for our defense capability. Now, this is not by any stretch of the imagination like long range ICBMs or being able to, you know, nuke Moscow from cans or anything like that. This is being able to fire missiles at ships approaching or planes approaching from our shoreline that are clearly identified as hostile. Now, this, of course, upsets some people because there are lots of vested interests when it comes to defence. There are Christopher Pine, for example, is a lobbyist for the defence industry. Wow, former defence minister for the LNP, Christopher Pine. Right, there are – and look you – know, I wonder how he got that job. I'm not saying he's for or against the policy. What I'm saying is there's some significant misunderstandings about what this sort of thing is about, right? What this is about is about what we should have strategically in Australia to defend Australia. This I, the conversation, David Spears goes off in these wild conversations. Are we going to buy Tomahawk missiles? Uh, what are we going to do with the Hawkeye system? What are we like? These are all defense brand names. You know, he's, it's, it's like he's in a toy store, like picking up the Transformers and putting down the GoBots. Like he just, it's like that's not what it's about, David. What it's about is in a modern conflict, what capabilities would we need? People go, oh, we have to be able to defend ourselves from China. It's like, well, actually, it's not about going to war with China. It's about the same sort of thing that China's about. And let's be clear here. China is building up a massive military capability for two very clear reasons, very, very clear reasons. And we pretend we don't know what they are because it kind of makes us feel awkward to admit the first one. Yeah, and we pretend we don't know what they are because some people on the right in Australia want to pretend China's the enemy because it's a very handy pretext for a little bit of racism. Yeah. Now, China is our largest trading partner and increasingly uh, so. Uh, thanks to the Labor government, we have improved our trade relations with China. Now, China has a growing military uh, capability uh, in its land forces because China is an authoritarian regime. It is a one-party state and it has in its strategic capability a requirement to be able to oppress its own population as well as defend its borders and all the rest of it, right? So it has a need for a large military to do that. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. No, a need within its own ideological self-justification. That's, that's right. the framework. That's the framework. Does anybody need to oppress their populace? Well, no. In fact, you and I are huge fans of democracy and we would like it to spread everywhere. However, that's not what China wants, or rather the regime that runs China. That's right. So when China is building up its uh, land forces and its air forces, it's about its capacity to dominate and oppress its own people and secure its own borders, including with India, for example, which is another very large country with a very large population, as well as to the southeast, where it has a number of uh, countries, including some with regimes that are inherently, some of which are also inherently unstable. So China has uh, also, don't forget, a border with North Korea. There are a lot of competing pressures 
on China militarily, from its internal security situation to its immediate borders to its need to maintain a diplomatic kind of uh, cold war and and a military cold war, if you like, around the question of Taiwan. All those are things that feed into China's strategic position. We shouldn't also ignore the fact that, yes, China is building up its navy. People point to this as a reason why Australia needs to change its strategic stance and strategic posture. No question. We should also remember, though, that China is the world's largest exporter of manufactured goods, and the amount of ships that go in and out of Chinese ports is phenomenal and is continuing to grow. The shipping lanes around China are also home to some of the world's most vicious and violent pirates. That's right, folks. Pirates are real and they're coming for your cargo ships. This is a genuine and real thing. China wants more control over the South China Sea, not just because of its own territorial ambitions, but because it wants to protect the shipping lanes, which China relies on. China's economic prosperity is geared towards exporting manufactured goods cheaply to the rest of the world and building a strong internal market. If those things are threatened, either by pirates on the high seas or an a nascent democratic movement that upends the status quo and causes a new revolution, the Chinese government will have failed in its strategic objectives. So that's part of the reason why it has this military buildup. Now, what do we need? We also need to protect our shipping lanes. We need the capacity to shoot beyond 40 miles from our coastline. What we don't need is 400 infantry fighting vehicles stuck in cans that can't go anywhere except run around Australia because we don't have the ships to send them anywhere. So this was a point Richard Miles made in on Insiders. David Spears likes to get into the weeds on these things. You know, he likes to talk about uh, various platforms and missiles and all these different bits and pieces. Fundamentally, what it boils down to is that Ukraine has shown that there is a need for sovereign capability. You know, we can't just buy a bunch of Tomahawk missiles from the US and expect that that's going to be enough for us forever, right? Just like when we built the Collins class submarines, we didn't have a proper plan to replace them. We now get stuck in these loops, right? Building a domestic capability, building the capability to build what we require here for our defense forces and evolving that as defense changes. There was a time when ground attack aircraft were the be-all and end-all of defense. What Ukraine and Russia has shown us is that ground attack aircraft are fundamentally a very expensive way to send pilots to their death and that actually much cheaper missile platforms are far more useful in modern warfare. So there's all sorts of these changes that need to happen. That's what the Defence Review paper is basically saying. It's basically saying, look, this is where we're at with our capability. This is where we can get to in the short term. And long term, you want to think about your capacity to build the things you need here in Australia, which is a fundamentally very labour position, right? Just like with pharmaceuticals, our defence capability should be sovereign. We should have the capacity And I note this week, which David Spears didn't raise because he gets so obsessed about tomahawks and hawkeyes and, you know, bloody 
bush ranger combat vehicle, whatever he's talking about, that he forgets that actually we did just nationalise a defence uh, a defence manufacturer who's come up with a piece of radar technology which is going to be fundamentally important to our uh, defence capability going forward. People were tweeting about it just this week. I was tweeting about it. I love nationalisation. It's one of my favourite things. You know, and I if think- anybody wants to get me a lovely gift, nationalising an industry that every time puts a smile on my face. And I think, you know, talking about uh, what was tweeted and talking about the national capability, you know, the panel also, of course, we're coming into the budget. Uh, there's lots of different competing uh, ideas about what should be done in the budget, what should be spent in the budget, what should be saved in the budget, and so on and so forth. Now, what wasn't mentioned at all, but uh, Chris Richardson from Access Economics tweeted about this this week, is that actually in March we had a budget surplus, uh, which represents a $204 billion turnaround in the budget over the last two years. That is a huge turnaround in the budget position partly because of inflation, partly because of international demand for our commodities. Because the war in Ukraine, of course, is changing what people in different places are buying and what they can buy from us. Exactly. Partly because Labor's ended a lot of the rorts, scandals and misspending that the Morrison government was just obsessed with doing. Uh, So in actual fact, the budget is in a decent position. There are long-term structural challenges uh, the NDIS was raised on the panel as one, and Anthony Albanese did announce this week that he wants to get to a point where the system growth in the NDIS is 8%, right? So that means the overall growth of the NDIS is at 8%. This has upset some people and disturbed some people because they think it means it's going to be a cut. And I was really disappointed to see that the panel uh, on Insiders didn't discuss the Bill Shorten's point that there are cowboys, there are sham contractors, there are rorters, not participants, but rorters on the supply side of the NDIS, that there is foreign private equity that is trying to extract value from the Australian taxpayer using the NDIS as a vehicle to do that, uh, and that in actual fact, if we regulate the, the NDIS properly, if we have proper oversights in place, we can get rid of the cowboys, crack down on the waste, and ensure that participants continue to get services they need. You know, you only need and to look... workers get protection in stable work environments. Absolutely. And that the workers have careers that are meaningful in the support of people with a disability and the people with a disability get better support. Like, that. that's a virtuous cycle, right? There was no discussion of that. It was all about, oh, this has created all these, these fears. I understand that, but media has a responsibility not to fuel fear. It has a responsibility to look at the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is we've had a decade in the NDIS of mismanagement under the Morrison government, and now we have an opportunity to reset that. That's what Bill Shorten's National Press Club speech was about. We've talked about that before. Uh, but this, this kind of goes to what I see as a bit of a failing this week in the media, quite frankly, Van, about how it has talked about some of these major policy challenges. The NDIS is a good example because there are clearly, and you only need to look at some of the discussion that happens online uh, with people who are on the NDIS, who are who need those supports, uh, talking about some of the problems they have with the system and the inefficiencies of the system and the problems with either the National Disability 
services administration or providers or sham contractors to know that there is a there is a potential there to improve those systems for participants, for workers, for the nation's bottom line, to know that that's the approach to take and that Labor has outlined that that's the approach it wants to take. Uh, and yet the media on Insiders Today sort of fueled this idea that the, this could mean cuts to, to services, even though that's been um, widely dismissed as, as the path to, to achieving this, um, if you like, cap on system growth at mm. 8%. Mm. At the same time, we've had this debate, and it came up again on Insiders, around job seeker and around the adequacy of the social safety net. Now, you and I have talked about this at length. You and I have both been uh, on the social safety net, um, new start for me. Yeah, new start for me, and I was uh, transferred to the DSP. And and I think that- I'll, like, And I'll be honest, this is, what, 10 years ago? Yeah. Um, more than more than ten years ago now, twelve maybe twelve years ago, but and it wasn't the first time that I'd been unemployed. Obviously, I lived in Wollongong, yeah. and which has yeah. structurally high unemployment, especially for young people, and at various times have been on and off. And then last time I was in Sydney, and there's no question. And you and I both argue that there should be uh, an increase and an improvement in job seeker allowance. There's Absolutely. No we believe that there should be an increase in job seeker. We think it's inadequate. I am opposed to the mutual obligations and the and obviously work for the dolls, so are you. Um, I am absolutely in favour of a complete restructuring of the system. That is about getting people into meaningful, dignified, safe, productive work within a full employment policy framework. Now, I want to be very clear. Full employment doesn't mean the government holds a gun to your head and tells you you have to get a job at the reject shop. Full employment means the government goes, we have spare capacity in our labour force. That's what unemployment is, is spare capacity. Let us build institutions and projects that serve the long-term interests of the people so government becomes an employer. Let's build and various projects that have happened yeah. in the past, electricity commissions and let's sewer every home and let's build highways and rail and and the Snowy River Scheme. Like these build are the social questions. housing. Build social housing. What full employment is is looking at what the nation needs and the government taking responsibility for creating effectively public service jobs of the spare capacity in the labour force to build a better country. Yeah, and this is this is just totally lost this week in this debate, and and the panel on insiders again, I think, missed the point entirely. You know, th there's been a lot of vitriol directed um, at Anthony Albanese uh, as the prime minister. Anthony Albanese tells the story about his mum being on uh, a benefit and being in social, growing up in social housing, and the level of vitriol on social media directed at Anthony Albanese, directed at other people who have been um, on the social safety net and who are no longer on the social safety net, uh, who who have talked about needing to improve the social wage. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and we should remember too that Anthony Albanese said the government is looking at the adequacy of payments. He has said that. And there are Labor MPs who have said pretty much what you and I are saying, which is, that job seeker is not enough, uh, that there needs to be other changes as well, and a holistic approach to those changes, not a vitriolic attack on the Prime Minister 
and his childhood and his mother, his past, his deceased mother. That, that is not going to achieve anything. And let me tell you why, Van. And I know you already know this, but for those listening at home, it's important to understand that while we all believe, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably believe it too, that people who are unemployed are unemployed because of failures of the state. There are large numbers of people who still believe the neoliberal framework and the neoliberal lies about unemployment. They believe it. Now, And the lie is unemployed people are lazy or unemployed yeah. people, they just don't want to work, they want to surf. And now, those lies, those lies are fundamentally being challenged and they need to be challenged. But we also have to accept the reality that the majority of Australians do not want to see JobSeeker raised to 90% of the age pension for a whole variety of reasons. And there is polling on this. Polling came out two yeah. weeks ago on this specific question. And I've got to say, Ben, I was so I shared it because I yeah. believe in full employment policy and I believe in increases to JobSeeker and all of these things. And I shared it and I had people on my social media account saying, oh, the polls must be wrong. And it's like that is so dangerous because the polls are right. That's right. And and to see the insiders panel talk about JobSeeker as though there is some sort of secret silent majority uh, that support JobSeeker being 90% of the pension or 90% of the minimum wage or, or whatever that substantial increase, that $24 billion increase would be, is both dangerous and inaccurate. People do support greater social housing. They do support more transport support. They do support more facilitation into employment. They absolutely support childcare and early childhood education, and, and we've seen that again and again and again. And we know this argument that people make, oh, we can lift people out of poverty because we did it during the pandemic uh, simply by doubling JobSeeker. We double job seeker during the pandemic in very different economic circumstances. Now, I spoke during the week on Wednesday about how government creates economic circumstances, how it, how it regulates markets, and how it can create economic outcomes. Now, there is no way the government can control a pandemic unless it releases one, right? And that is not something we want to have. That didn't happen. happen. That, that is didn't, not a thing that happened. That didn't happen. We don't want to see that happen. The circumstances we find ourselves in now are that there is very low levels of unemployment, 3.5% nationwide. In Ballarat, where Ben and I live, it's 1.7%. There are, there are literally businesses screaming out for more workers. We had an announcement this week around migration policy, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is designed to help alleviate some of the labour shortages that we face in this country. Now, people say, oh, well, 40% of people who are on uh, job seeker have a disability. Well, if that's the case, we should be looking at eligibility requirements. We should be looking at how the system actually functions and works. We know that over the course of the 40 years of neoliberalism, that people who are not unemployed, that is, people who are unable to work, or people who have a disability, or people who are not actively looking for work, end up lumped into unemployment benefit. So that's that 40% of people, right? There are people who are punished because all, all they can manage, in inverted commas, all they can manage is part-time work because of their either caring responsibilities or because of their uh, disabilities. 
and somehow or another they end up in job seeker. Now, those are decisions governments make. What I'm arguing for, I think what you've argued for, I think what lots of people are arguing for, is to change those decisions, to make new decisions about how our social safety net works so that if you are unable to work, you are not punished, you are not told that you are less than because you are unable to work. And you also don't have job finding services or obligations directed at you, which is a waste of resources. I mean, this is something that should come up. If we were having a genuinely honest discussion about what unemployment and employment looks like, you know, the idea that somebody who is physically incapable of working is being put through like mutual obligation, being referred to job network providers, and it's theatre, like it's pure illusion and it's a waste of resources for the government to pay outsourced services, the job network providers, to engage this just theatrical nonsense that somebody who is incapable of working should be able to work and let's all do another CV workshop or teach you how to use the photocopier or whatever. But this is ridiculous and these are the inefficiencies in the system. What we need is we need a holistic approach to employment that looks at government job service provision that looks at the way that caring responsibilities work within the economy and on an individual level, micro and macro understanding of what the actual forces are at play that can get people into the workforce or structurally keep them out of them. Because again and again, we have advocates from the disability community saying, we want to work, but we need accessible workplaces to do that. That is part of employment policy as well. Looking at flexible hours and working from home and accessible buildings and all of those things are part of what should be our approach to employment. And I want to talk about the theatrics for a moment, Van, because, you know, there was someone on the panel today who said this was the worst week for the Albanese Labor government. Um, and I just I think that that shows a real lack of understanding about where mainstream discussion is. You know, we are often critical here on the week on Wednesday about right-wing media, and rightly so. The right-wing media, as we've discussed, is not about news. It's about selling stuff. We need to be very careful that people who hold left-wing views don't fall into the same but opposite trap. And and that trap is very much a social media rabbit hole. Uh, it's very easy to see job seeker trend on Twitter or hashtag raise the rate trend on Twitter and think that the majority of Australians support a view that they don't. Uh, and to say that the polls are wrong. And I want to point out, Van, that on Friday there was uh, uh, a gathering. I mean, I think it was supposed to be a rally. It ended up being a gathering. Um, it was publicised for weeks on social media. ACOS- With enormous amounts of amplification from- ACOS supported it. Like it was a, it was supposed to be this big rally outside Anthony Albanese's office in Graindler his electorate office. Grainler is a inner city Sydney seat, right? If you uh, – there was 30 people there, right, 30 people. Over the course of the two hours that the people were there, even the organisers have tweeted there was about 100 people turn up. Now, 100 people turned up on a sunny Sydney Friday afternoon. Now <laughs> – In I, one of the suburbs with the best public transport links – in the country, yeah, like Americville is not the boondocks. No, no. And I want to point out that 
if you're trying to organize a nationwide movement and 30 people turn up, that's not a nationwide movement. No. You know, this was not at the same time there weren't, you know, it's not like the numbers were spread out because there were rallies outside every MP's office or something like that. This was deliberately targeted at the Prime Minister's electorate office. Now, if the people who you're trying to mobilise are predominantly uncommitted during that day, right, they don't have work commitments. Now, some of them will have medical appointments. Some of them will have caring requirements. Some will be forced to do mutual obligation Absolutely. nonsense. I want to recognise all of that. But if your argument is that there's hundreds of thousands of people who support this issue and 30 people turn up, that is not that is not something that's, that, that is real. That is just not real. And the idea that this is a vote-changing issue for people is really, it, it, it's just, there's a, a fundamental resistance to the data and the campaign to raise the rate and for better employment outcomes cannot win if it doesn't acknowledge the actual data. And that data, unfortunately, is the majority of Australians do not support raising JobSeeker, especially not in an environment where there are labour shortages and not when the overwhelming sentiment of Australians is that there should be a responsibility on the government to create opportunities for people to work. That is still a very strong cultural memory with people from my generation and older mm. and that, that is, that's what the government should be doing is creating jobs rather than paying out job seeker. You won't find any Australian who begrudges anybody who physically cannot work from being supported through welfare. Correct. You know, again and again, it's interesting in Australia, nobody ever attacks the age pension. No. You know, it would be political poison. The worst, most evil, you know, like anti-humanist Tory scumbag knows that if they went to an election going, we've got to cut the age pension, that would be the end of them. Okay, so in, in ingrained in the Australian society is the idea that there should be a welfare system to look after you. But that doesn't extend as far as JobKeeper for numerous reasons. And the, the rhetoric on social media is so absolutely dangerous to actually getting the outcome of dignified conditions for unemployment, improved resources to support people who are unemployed, to structural reform of the system, to, and this, the dream in my heart of hearts of restoring a Commonwealth employment service as opposed to this outsourced job, job mm. network provider nonsense. Like all of these things are endangered by camp, like loud campaigns that run almost exclusively in the media and not on the ground, like this is a huge problem because it creates this division of perception where the conversations that need to be had to get outcomes in the sector are not happening. And, I mean, just the poison of the rhetoric as well, attacking people like it's happened to me, it's happened to you, yeah. it's happened to people of enormous amounts of policy influence in this country who are allies to the cause of raising JobSaker who've been attacked and pilloried on social media and it's like to what end? Well, this is the thing, right? So, you know, systemically we support change and reform. Systemically we do want to see a, a reasonable increase in JobSaker. Uh, systemically we want all of these other changes to make sure the social safety net uh, helps people who are, and when I say unemployed, I want to define that. I define unemployment 
as a temporary state of being, right? Now, there are people who are long-term unemployed. Now, if you're a long-term unemployed person who's over 55, we should be thinking about how do we transition that person to the age pension? Because quite frankly, we know how difficult it is going to be for that person to get uh, a job. Because of structural ageism. Absolutely. And in terms of holistic reform of the sector, it's tearing down the barriers to people who want to work and can't. So when we talk about all of the detail about that, when that gets drowned out by people using social media to launch vitriolic personal attacks whether they be against me or you or Anthony Albanese or, you know, whoever they're against, because they are always personalised attacks, often quite irrational. And, I and look, I get the stress and pressure of being on JobSeeker. Because we have been on JobSeeker. And it's, and it's awful, right? And it's awful. And it's hard to participate in a public debate when you're worried about whether you're going to have somewhere to live or you're going to be able to feed yourself or your kids or pay your bills. I get that. I've been there. But we cannot have a public debate in this country and we cannot pretend there is a mass movement of people because some people on social media hurl abuse at other people. We cannot, and, and because they have a couple of people in the media who who use them as a voice in their articles. That does not that does not represent the majority position. The majority position remains that people who are unemployed should be facilitated into employment. That's absolutely the majority and position. And I want to be very clear as well, and I've seen this on social media, as there are lots of advocates in this space who speak on behalf of a community that they're not from. Yeah. And that's very challenging. Like I saw some comments the other day about any Albanese is never allowed to use his log cabin story ever again. And it's like, but you don't have a log cabin story and he does. And for you to say that is is really, it's really classist. Yeah. You know, when you and I were unemployed, like we didn't come from families who could take the edge off no. our unemployment. And you and I got into some pretty marginal, this is long before we knew yeah. one another, by the way, everybody, yeah, yeah. but the conversations we've had about extremely marginal and vulnerable situations that the two of us found ourselves in, you know, without uh, families that could, you know, we couldn't call it, we didn't see the cockroaches crawling up the wall. We couldn't call our dad so he could turn up and stop it all. Yeah. That was not an option for either you or myself or for the majority of people who find themselves in that Absolutely. situation. And the idea that Anthony Albanese has, you know, lost his qualification, hearing that from people who come from considerable comfort and wealth is it's classism, guys. It has to stop, Yeah, Look, you know, because the other thing is some stats came out the other day that Andy Albanese's mother was actually in a worse position financially than anybody who receives JobSeeker now. She received less at a time when prices were high and the idea that she raised someone who became prime minister of this country yeah. in that environment is nothing short of miraculous. And there's no Medicare, of course, at the time. Yeah, and given the fact that you and I know all too well that the the – the pressures on you in a, a marginalised economic circumstance are not pressures that structurally encourage you to raise to the position of Prime Minister. That's not a thing that happens. No, no. And look, so, you know, that was part of the debate, obviously, uh, on uh, insiders. It's going to continue to be part of the debate. I think we are going to see movement in this space in the budget. Uh, whatever happens, the, there are going to be 
Um, those loud voices on social media are not going to be appeased. Uh, they're never going to be appeased. Uh, I think most people in, in the Labor uh, side of politics, the 42% of people who would put Labor as a primary, um, understand that. Uh, and quite frankly, you know, as disappointed as we can be about that, that's just the way it is. There are some people who are always going to be unhappy um, because they're not going to get exactly what they want. But the idea that there's a media shibboleth that people are believing, ra- a social media shibboleth, yeah. rather than people looking at the hard facts and data is is campaign danger. If yeah. we want the outcome, we actually have to assess the reality. Yeah, and when you think about, so they say, oh, well, now Labor MPs are signing up to raise the right. That's because Labor MPs do, like you and I, want to see a reasonable increase in job seeker. What they're not signing up to is this notion that it should be the same as the age pension or 90% of the age pension, whatever that $30 billion, $24 billion um, increase would be. They want a broader review, uh, and that's what I think we'll end up with is some broader changes. Van, I want to move on because there's some other stuff that's happened um, uh, and just on that idea that it was the worst week uh, for uh, the Anthony Al- Albanese Labor government. Who is leading the Liberals 56-44. Yeah, and at the same time. That's like, a, that's like a war popularity. That's literally the kind of level of popularity John Curtin had when the war had turned in the favour of the Allies in 1944. Yeah, and let's be really clear here too. You know, the Anthony Albanese Labor government has taken on the Pharmacy Guild a hugely powerful lobby group with a massive amount of financial resources in the interests of some of the most vulnerable people in this country, people who require ongoing and uh, repeats of medication. They've taken them on. They're taking on the oil and gas giants by by talking about uh, improving the tax take from oil and gas. We expect to see something on that in the budget as well. Like This is a government that is taking on some of these tough issues. It's talking about making changes to the social safety net, to improve it for people, to help people get into employment, to help people who cannot get employment be better supported. All of these things are things that where the majority of Australians go, they get a vibe that actually Anthony Albanese and the Labor government's getting on with stuff. They're not being beholden. They're not being afraid. They are taking on some of these big issues. And they're not denying opportunities to Australians, which is certainly... The vibe you got in the Morrison government, there were things that they could have that you couldn't. And I think one of the things that came out, Peter Harcher said this on the Insiders panel about the about Anthony Albanese attending Kyle Sanderlands's wedding. Now, you know, you or I might not have gone to Kyle Sanderlands's wedding. Frankly, we weren't invited, (laughs) right? And I doubt we ever will be. But Anthony Albanese was invited. He obviously accepted live on air. Uh, He did that before he was aware of the guest list by all reports. Uh, and then it comes out that members of the Sandlands' wedding party are, quote, unquote, notorious underworld figures. Colourful Sydney identities, they used to call them when I was a girl. Now, Anthony Albanese has been questioned about this every day of the week this week, and he has consistently said, I keep my commitments even to Kyle Sandlands. I'll be attending the wedding uh, and I'll, I'll stay f- I'll stay for the wedding and then I'll head off. You I know. didn't realise that he had been asked to go to Sanderlands' wedding live on air. 
Yeah, yeah, that's how do you possibly say no in that situation? Well, mate, I'm getting, I'm just, I'm imagining here. Well, mate, I'm getting married and I, you know, it's going to be one of the biggest days of my life. And I just wondered if you was probably, I bet, am I right? Did anyone hear this? Sandaland said, I'm going to sit you next to my mum, right? So what's he going to say? Oh, my God. No, I'm not going to sit next to your mum. So he goes and he sits next to Kyle Sandaland's mum. And there's photos of him with babies and other people at the wedding. There are no no photos of him with colourful Sydney identities, though. No, there's not. And when he was asked about this consistently throughout the week, he was asked every day of the week, and he said, I keep my commitments even to Mr. Sanderlands. And let's be really clear here, Mr. Sanderlands is an Australian identity and he is someone who was from a working He's class recognisable. He's recognisable. And he was someone who was homeless and he has a working class story come good, right? Now, you and I can disagree about Kyle Sanderlands on a whole range of different levels. And believe me, I have. And, and there's no, and I don't, I don't listen to his show. I don't intend to listen to his show. I think bring back Marcus Paul. Marcus Paul was fantastic. But the reality is a million people listen to Kyle Sanderlands's radio show. Believe it or not, even more people listen to that show than listen to The Week on Wednesday. Hard to believe, I know. And that's why we certainly encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and recommend it wherever you go online. Absolutely. So there is good politics here. There is actually good politics here. I've got to say, like, you and I have a a greater insight into the day-to-day reality of political Sure. Activities and generally on the the briefing notes that you might give an interviewer, like about what you'd like to talk about today or whatever, you generally don't have to put in them. Please do not ask me to go to your wedding on <laughs> air. That would be uncomfortable, and my diary may not facilitate that. So I have a feeling that might be like a standard part of the communication process around securing interviews. Now, like, please do not. But let's be really clear here. A lot of Kyle Sandilands' audience are not politically engaged and now they've had this engagement where in this conversation about Anthony Albanese going to Kyle Sandilands' wedding, they obviously like Kyle Sandilands. These people, you know, they may not be people that we want to spend time with, but we have to accept that Australia has a diverse range of views. Are you saying consider the data? Consider the data. We need a majoritarian position. And Anthony Albanese does need to have some appeal to at least some of the people who listen to Kyle Sanderlands. And this idea that media is going to moralise Anthony Albanese out of going to a wedding on a Saturday, even Susan Lay attempted to attack him about this. Like, how dare he take a day off this close to the budget? It's like, lady. Is this La- is Susan Lay who used a government funded travel trip to speculate on, like, property? Properties? Yeah, yeah exactly. that, that one. That's that Susan one. Lay. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's like, lady, it's a Saturday. He went to a wedding. Uh, I think he was asked, oh, you know, will you be drinking at the wedding? And he said, no, I won't be drinking at the wedding. Like, <laughs> You know, the guy is – we've got to put this into its proper perspective. And I think Harcher's point was he turned a potential pig's ear into a silk purse is actually spot on. Like, we need prime ministers who can have conversations with people from all walks of life, who have all sorts of different levels of political engagement. You know, the prime minister of Australia needs to be comfortable sitting across the table from a king and sitting across the desk with a disc jockey whether that's Kyle Sanderlands or King Charles, you know, whether that's having to negotiate with Pauline Hanson in the Senate, Blech. right, Blech. or having to negotiate with Adam Bant in the lower house. Blech. These are all things Anthony Albanese needs to be able to do. So the fact that he can go to a wedding 
and there are people there that he's not going to spend time talking to because he doesn't want to hear their views, but he can still go to the wedding, I think that's a feather in his cap. I just want to shout out to Anthony Albanese's uh, retinue for making sure there are no photos of the Prime Minister with colourful Sydney identities that came out of that wedding. That would have been, that's a logistical triumph, by the way. Now, very quickly, Van, I want to just quickly say the Yes campaign is continuing to kick goals. Um, May Day events are happening around the country. The union movement, of course, uh, May Day uh, is tomorrow. Uh, Depending on when you're listening to this, it may well be, have gone, been and gone, but it's the 1st of May. Uh, Sally McManus, leader of the trade union movement, uh, had a May Day event in Cairns. Everyone was wearing Yes t-shirts. Michelle O'Neill had a May Day event in Tasmania. Everyone was wearing Yes t-shirts. Queensland and Tasmania are two seats, are two states where the uh, the Yes vote is the softest. That is to say, there isn't a majority uh, voting Yes at the moment in the polls. Although Yes is still the largest group. Yes, there is also not a majority voting No. Correct. There, uh, in those states, there's a considerable community of undecided. So there's there's really good um, opportunities there at the moment. If the referendum had been held this weekend, the voice would have passed. We would have recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in our constitution. Um, but, of course, the union movement is doing this work. It's doing work on all these things, the minimum wage work it's doing. It's doing work on uh, on benchtop stone and silica dust diseases. You know, the union movement has not stopped just because the Morrison government has gone away, and it's more important than ever to be a member of your union. You go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, because whether it's protecting workers against uh, silica dust disease in the workplace, making sure workers get paid proper wages and superannuation each and every week or fortnight, or ensuring that our First Nations comrades, brothers, sisters, and others are recognised in the constitution. Uh, the union movement is leading that charge. And fundamentally, we need to be supporting one another, showing solidarity to one another. Uh, and the referendum is one example of that. Another example, which something that I've been involved with for a long time, and I want to give a shout out here to the Migrant Workers Centre uh, in Victoria, because I know they've done a lot of work on this review around migration in Australia. Uh, we know that temporary migrant workers, uh, sometimes referred to as guest workers, it's a very nice way uh, of referring to them, um, Sometimes they're referred to in very terrible racist ways, which we will not repeat, um, but often uh, highly exploited or highly in highly exploitable situations. Uh, situations vulnerable to exploitation. That's an even better. You see, this beautiful part of having a writer as a wife, you know. Um, the Again, this week, policy from the Albanese Labor government about reforms to this system. Fundamentally, this system has been broken for a long time. And I'll give you just a quick rundown on what it used to look like and how it currently operates. So what it looked like is if you were in another country and you want to come to Australia, you could come to Australia as a temporary foreign worker, right? Your visa was attached to an employer. The employer would bring you over here. You would work doing whatever they said for however long they said. They would have to agree on a form that they would pay you a minimum salary, right? A minimum salary, which, by the way, was significantly less than the average Australian wage. We're talking about around around $54,000, right? That's the wage that you'd have to be paid as a minimum. We know because of the work of people like the Migrant Workers Centre that in many cases, those migrant workers whose 
position in this country was dependent on that employment were being forced by employers to pay back the employer some of the money, right? So their effective salaries were much, much lower than that minimum $54,000, right? And if they complained about this, they'd be sacked, their visa would be cancelled, and they'd be sent to another country. They would be deported, and they would never be able to come back, right? So that's how vulnerable their situation was. That's how vulnerable their situation is today. And if that sounds like an absolute recipe for sexual exploitation, you are correct, and we know that this happened. There was that terrible Four Corners report some years ago working with what's now the United Workers Union where they found all of these women in the agricultural industry who are essentially being told you will put up with it or we will deport you. And it is it is exploitative, it is rigged, it is set up to benefit employers, large-scale employers, who mass churn these workers. And there are stories of companies set up in places like the Philippines where people are just churned through. They'll come, they'll do a temporary migration uh, stint here, they'll live in cramped conditions, they'll end up having to pay fees to agents in the Philippines, agents in Australia, pay in some cases money back to the employer, leave with very little money, no superannuation, having been sexually exploited and um, having had their labour exploited. Now, what the situation is going to move to, I should also mention that there has been um, changes around student visas as well. used to be 20 hours, then we had the pandemic, labour shortages, we said students could work as many hours as they liked. That's going to change now as well. That minimum salary is going to rise from 54000 to 70000 which is where it would have been if it had been indexed over the last decade. Uh, and in, the workers are actually going to get some agency. So if you leave your employer because they're exploitative or just because you want to take a different job, you can. In fact, you get a six-month grace window to find another uh, employer. Wow, competition in the labour market. Much it's funny how neoliberals always talk about that and you'd always set up systems to prevent that from happening. And, and it's a much better system. They're also reviewing the, the skills mix uh, so that, quite frankly, for a long time, we've had a situation in this country where we have essentially tried to import uh, cheap labour to do jobs that we did not want to raise the wages on. And I say that. Because we know that even at that minimum level of 54000 we know that there were employers, often large agribusinesses, but not just in agribusiness. We know in hospitality, we know across many sectors uh, that those workers uh, were being exploited. We know they were being forced to pay back some of the money. So we've sort of had this idea, and it's been bubbling along under the surface, that there are jobs Australians don't want to pay more for and we'll just get some temporary migrants, and then we'll ship them away when they're a problem. What this is saying is we need more pathways to permanency. We need to give uh, people who want to come to this country and build a life uh, and make a contribution to the commonwealth that they want to be part of, the prosperity they want to help build, uh, that those pathways should exist. We know that I love the idea of people wanting to be Australian because I think being Australian is great and I'm all in, the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. If this country's got a vibe that you want to be a part of, I want to facilitate you being part of that vibe. Absolutely. And I think the 
there's sort of three tiers of regulation that the review is proposing. So that there's a light touch for very skilled migrants on high salaries. Like if you're coming here because you're an American who's coming to be CEO of Borrell, that's actually something that happened, for example. You probably don't need a great deal of regulatory protection because you're being paid 12 to $16 million a year. And quite frankly, I'd actually rather you didn't come at all. But nonetheless, uh, if there are some very skilled people, and I've seen articles in the Boss's pamphlet, for example, that talk about how the big four uh, accounting firms will you, you know, will actually start to see movement between them because people will come to EY on a, on a skilled visa and then go, actually, KPMG will, will support my family, whatever they're going to do, right? So they don't need as much regulatory uh, support to have their rights enforced. Uh, there's a mid-level for migrants who earn above the amount of uh, of that minimum level, above that 70000 but are not necessarily on very high incomes. So that there's registration for temporary, uh, for the for the employers of temporary uh, migrant workers. Uh, and then uh, in those lower wage cohorts where there are, skill shortages, like in aged care, like in the NDIS, that there is a higher level of regulatory oversight uh, because we know those are the areas where there is, and agriculture, There are you know, those are the areas where there is the most exploitation. This is a sensible reform. This is saying we look at the data, we see what it tells us, and as a result, we're going to adjust our policies and our regulations and our actions to improve the outcomes. That's good policy. Hopefully, it will result in better outcomes for those workers and continued economic prosperity for the nation of Australia. Wouldn't that be nice? I love it. Continued economic prosperity for the nation of Australia. Absolutely superb. And it comes on the back, again, another policy that was not discussed on Insiders that was announced was improving the pathways to citizenship for people from New Zealand who want to become Australians uh, and the first large, Not my dad. Yeah. Like, you know, there's been so much happening. And for people on Insiders to kind of pretend that all that's happened this week is uh, a shopping list of defence spending priorities and a mass movement of 30 people. Yeah. is just It was just really kind of sad and frustrating to watch because there's actually a lot going on. You know, we've covered it off really quickly here. We don't even have the resources of the ABC. We've done it. In our pyjamas, basically. Yes, I feel we should admit that we are in our beautiful pyjamas and we have the beautiful dog. All the strange sort of uh, vocal variation that you might have heard has been based around the fact that Germanicus has been trying to get on at various times both our laps during the recording of this show. So, look, that's the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday this week. Uh, don't forget to join Van and I for our regular week on Wednesday episode this Wednesday. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone uh, who has been supporting the show. Uh, April 2023 is on track to be our biggest month ever. Our biggest month There wasn't ever. even an election. It's pretty incredible stuff. Uh, so a huge congratulations to everyone who has supported the show, liked, shared, Made a contribution at our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Uh, and we will talk again on Wednesday. On track for a million downloads. On track for a million downloads. Sounds good. Remember, until then, be kind to yourself and to each other.